Welcome to the Dog Liaison Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. On this podcast, we like to get nerdy in understanding dog behavior and cognition. So if you like science, you want to know the why behind why your dog does what he does, and overall you just enjoy deep diving, then this podcast is for you. So let's get into it. Happy Tuesday, my friends. I hope that you guys are all having a very fabulous day. I'm going to be talking about all about resource guarding. I haven't done, I think, a live episode on just resource guarding before, so I'm super excited about this. And I was planning it all out. It's going to be good. I want to talk about resource guarding on the whole. Like we're covering everything from what is resource guarding to what's the difference between resource guarding and food arousal. We are going deep into it. This is like when I said all about resource guarding, I wasn't joking. Okay. Now, to be clear, we're going to talk about resource guarding as it pertains to resource guarding people and what that actually looks like. What is resource guarding people? Because a lot of people mistake what resource guarding people actually is. And they think that it's like, oh, well, my dog is territorial. We're going to dig deeper into that because that's a little abstract, a little broad. Okay. Resource guarding people, resource guarding food, rather, resource guarding toys, resource guarding space, resource guarding environments, right? We're going to be talking about all of this. Now, as I said, I'm super excited for this episode because we are covering everything from how to treat it to what it is, to how you can learn the differences between resource guarding and arousal control. A lot of times there's some overlap. So for example, there's a big difference between whether or not the dog gets to keep something and it is theirs versus you need to take it away because their life is in danger if they continue to have that thing in their mouth. Two very different things. They get lumped in together as both being resource guarding they're not. They're separate. The life skill is very different. And we're teaching the dog two very different things in those cases. Whether or not the dog gets to keep the resource and whether or not it's actually theirs makes a major difference in the life skill that you teach the dog. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you're new around here, hello, welcome. Thank you for jumping in. My name is Jenna, and I am the owner and head coach at Dog Liaison. All we do is talk about anxiety-related disorders, resource guarding, canned absolutely be fueling your dog's anxiety. Many dogs with multiple phobias also have resource guarding tendencies, whether that is abundant full and it is like everything that comes into their way is they're going to guard it. Or it might just be certain context specific, you know, it might be more rare. We have a couple of guardians that we work with actually as we speak that their resource guarding is not as consistent, but it seems to show up at very interesting times, not random necessarily. They're not uh, just inexplicable resource guarding, there is absolutely a reason, but they're more seldom in nature. So we're going to talk about how resource guarding pertains to anxiety as well. Let's first chat about the difference between resource guarding and arousal control. Number one, resource guarding is an essential resource that the dog perceives he needs in order to survive. It is an essential resource that keeps the dog living. At least that's how he perceives. Yes. And the resource is something he gets to keep. It is not a trade. When you are treating resource guarding, you are telling your dog that they can trust you around their resource. It is their resource. When you are treating your dog's recovery through resource guarding, you must be instilling trust that that dog can trust you around that resource, that you will not take it from them. It is theirs. It is a promise. However, 
if you are trying to teach your dog to trade or you're trying to teach your dog not to become too aroused around a particular stimulus, that is not a resource that they get to keep. That is a different life skill. Teaching your dog to trade you things and say, hey, I don't want you to have that, but you can have this instead is a different life skill, a different interaction, a different relationship, then you get to keep that. I'm not taking it. The messages are two different things. And what I see in the world of dog training is that they're getting overlapped. And we think that just because we're teaching the dog that he gets to keep something that automatically means that he's going to be comfortable and happy with treating. Two very, very, very different life skills. I'm not sure how they got like overlapped, other than the fact that a resource guarder can have both issues. But with me, I look at impulse control as something different. And to be clear, when I say impulse control, I mean that at the most like scientific level of what an impulse control is defined as in humans, especially. When we think about impulse control from a scientific perspective, what it's been defined by the scientific literature, especially primarily in human psychology and then that translated to dog psychology, what it primarily means is the individual is willing to control themselves in the anticipation that something better is coming. The individual knows that if they don't respond immediately and they just hold tight, they hold that anticipation, they will get something better as a result of their patience. That is how it's defined as impulse control. There's been a lot of studies on that, right? So if we're thinking about impulse control for a dog, you can think of this as a lot of different things, but it's primarily, I don't need to freak out right this second. I can be patient. I can hold this anticipation knowing that something better is on the way, okay? So I think it's really important from now on that your brain is delineating between my dog gets to keep the resource and my dog does not get to keep the resource. That is his, and I'm building trust around being around that thing that he gets to keep versus that thing is not his, but I'm going to offer him a trade. He gets to have something else instead. Two different life lessons there, yeah? The second thing that we need to like set the groundwork for around resource guarding is that resource guarding is one of the most normal things a dog can do. I'm going to say that again. Resource guarding is one of the most normal, logical, reasonable things any dog anywhere can do. You know what the irony is? Here's the real irony, my friends. The dogs that don't ever resource guard, that just come out of the womb and just are like, y'all can have my resources. Those dogs are evolutionarily the default or the, the mistakes. They are evolutionarily the defects. They have gone awry as far as our good friend Darwin is concerned. The dogs that are not guarding are abnormal. It is the dogs that are guarding that are in competition to be the fittest. We have to understand that our perspective is backwards. We've got to start with that because we're sitting here punishing our dogs for growling at us every time we walk by their food bowl. And it's like, yeah, duh, duh. Like step one to survival. Don't let others take your food. Step one to survival. Don't let others take your shelter and your water. Like we have to start off with that pretext, okay? Then we can start to appreciate our dog's perspectives. Then we can go, ah, okay, what you're doing is normal. It's not something I want you to continue doing. I don't want you to continue thinking I'm threatening you because that can be dangerous, right? 
But at least I see that you are operating it from a fundamental level, what makes sense. And what I am asking you to do by not guarding, what I'm asking of you is actually a really tall order. And I'm asking you to go against 14,000 years of evolution. So if you could just do that for me, if you could just not, you know, tap into your 14,000 years of evolution, that would be great. Thanks. Once we frame it like that, we suddenly realize like, oh, okay. Okay, now I realize I have an appreciation for what I'm actually embarking on, right? I have an appreciation for what I'm actually asking of my dog right now to just like not be the fittest. But the cool thing is he can still learn this, right? When I pose it like this to kind of reframe the task ahead of us, to give us that appreciation of what is the task that we're embarking on. When I reframe it like that, I say it not to like defeat you and be like, well, it's a lost cause. Good luck. Right. But more just to show you like, yes, it's possible that we can get our dogs to not feel threatened around us and their resources. But we just need to start off from the basis that our dog is right. And the truth is we resource guard against our dogs all the time, all the time. We don't let our dogs take our food. Heaven for people. How many people are like, my dog can't have human food? I mean, resource guarding. I don't want my dog to think he can have my food. Resource guarding. I don't want my dog to jump on my bed. Resource guarding. I don't let my dog go into that bush or that area of the yard. Resource guarding. We resource guard all the time. It's not abnormal. It is reasonable. We have to start off with that intention. Yeah. Now, some of the things that I think we have to confront is that resource guarding does have a likelihood of increased danger. The likelihood of danger or injury with resource guarding is higher than most of the other like quote unquote aggression cases that we see in that most resource guarding happens in the home. It can't obviously happen out in the world. It can happen at the dog park and the whatevers, which we'll get to, right? But it, I think if we looked at it statistically, I don't think there's any science on this. So I'm just like going off as a hunch here, a well-educated hunch. But I think that if we looked at it statistically, resource guarding is primarily happening inside the home or inside the dog's property, right? And so as a result of that, the dog probably has more freedom, but in the likelihood of danger is increased just by means of how much space they have available and how much freedom they have, Right. But what ends up happening is our bodies intuitively know this. Our bodies intuitively know that the dog is more dangerous simply because they're not on leash and they're closer to us. There's no barrier between us. And so what happens is our bodies are going to respond to the perceived threat a lot quicker. We're going to pick up the signals that our dogs give us a lot faster with resource guarding than in other behaviors or other aggression cases. Okay. And what this looks like is if our dog is eating and we notice that they just kind of like put their head in, in the bowl and then like give a little snarl with their lip, but they're not actually growling or they're looking up at the corner of their eyes, we're quicker to pick that up. We're quicker to respond to it as well, right? We're quicker to be like, ah, got the message. I'm not going to get myself losing a finger today. I'm going to back up. And what ends up happening as a result of this, and again, this is more of like an anecdotal thing, but I think most trainers would agree with me because I don't think there's any clear science on this specifically. But what we end up seeing is that the dogs are quicker to use those behavior signals because we're quicker to respond to them, right? They see, ah, me lift, lifting my lift and throwing my eyes up at you like that got you to move away. 
therefore it worked, therefore I'm going to continue doing it. And so we see the dogs quit escalate their behavior into these more overt danger signals faster because it's quote unquote working, right? And what I mean by working is it's getting you to move away from them. It's getting you or whoever they're guarding against to give them space. So therefore in their mind, it was effective. And the dog is letting give this facial structure individual, leave me alone. And so I think one of the reasons why we perceive that the dog is escalating in his aggression faster isn't necessarily that he is or he isn't escalating faster, but it's more so that the dog is figuring out what behaviors elicit what responses from you. And so therefore, because we intuitively know that we are in more danger because the dog is free, we are going to self-guard. We're going to back away. We're going to protect ourselves faster, quicker. We're less likely to overlook those things. So let's talk about how we treat resource guarding. Now, as I said before, there's a difference between resource guarding and arousal. We're going to talk about resource guarding in the sense that the dog gets to keep the resource. The dog gets to keep the resource. That is a different lesson that the dog doesn't get to keep the resource. The dog has to give it up. Okay. But for right now, we're going to be talking about dog gets to keep it. As I mentioned before, the first thing you need to understand is that you are establishing trust with your dog. You are telling them they can trust you around that resource. You will not take it. It is theirs. You understand it's theirs. They can have it. Have fun. Live your life. Yes? The first thing we have to understand in principle is that if we're treating resource guarding, we're establishing that trust. The second principle we need to teach or the principle you need to understand for that matter is when you approach the dog with their resource or when the individual approaches the dog with a resource, something better happen. I like it when they come closer to me because that means something better is about to happen. I like that. That's good. That is the second principle we need to be instilling. The dog likes it when you or whoever their guardian gets gets closer because something good is going to happen to them as a result of that. Yes. Now, ideally, when you are treating resource guarding, ideally, you are reinforcing with something that's higher value than the resource that they have. Okay. And here's why I'm going to explain why. And then I'm going to explain, like, because I know y'all were like, how do I do that? That logistically, how would that work? Hold on. I got you. Okay. Number one, the reason you want to trade something higher goes back to the principle of impulse control. Remember, we were talking about the principle of impulse control is. If the dog or any individual for that matter waits patiently, they will reap a higher reward than if they just responded impulsively. Yes. So we're teaching our dogs if you just continue being existing with your thing and you just hold tight, the payoff is greater. The payoff at the end is greater than it would be than if you just took the right out of the impulse response. Okay. Now, the truth is, and we know this with people, we know this with dogs, we know this with other animals. This is just like scientific fact. The vast majority of people can learn the lesson of be patient. Something good will come to you. They learn that lesson very, very, very quickly. If you reward with a higher value thing than the thing they already have or the thing that they want, they learn that lesson very quickly. That is just scientific fact. Not all the time are they going to learn that quickly. Because of course we have our deviation, right? Our standard deviations. But by and large, an individual, whether it's a dog, a person, or otherwise, 
is going to learn faster if you give them something that they like more than what they already have, more valuable than the thing they have, okay? The fourth principle that you have to know moving into resource guarding, the fourth principle you have to understand is that duration is especially important in the criteria of resource guarding. Now, duration is like one of the things that there's a lot of different types of criteria that you can impose in a dog's training session, right? And duration is like really important in separation anxiety often. And I see a lot of people relying on the proximity to the resource and resource grading, like how close can I get to the dog with the resource? I actually care a whole lot less with proximity than I do with duration. And the reason is, is because duration is something that the dog is mindful of. They just don't know they're mindful of it. And what I mean by this is, let's say hypothetically, in this hypothetical, your dog is guarding his food bowl. When he has his food, he's guarding his food bowl. He is used to, in most cases, dogs are used to having their guardian walk around the house while they're with their food bowl, right? They can handle the commotion. As long as they're not close by, they can handle the commotion. And even you might be even able to walk by them with their food bowl. Like if the dog is in the corner, you may be able to walk by to get to the couch or whatever while the dog has the resource. But if you came up to them and stopped, even if it was the exact same distance as it was if you just walked by, you came up to them and stopped and looked at them, you're an immediately higher threat. In their perception, in most dogs' cases, you just went from kind of a danger to now you're challenging me. You're asking for my resource just because you're stopped and looking at me. So something that I don't think it's talked, everyone talks about proximity, but something that doesn't get talked a lot about with resource guarding is the duration of you or whoever they're guarding against around the resource while your dog has it. Okay. That's the fourth principle you have to be aware of. Now let's talk about actionable. So those are the principal steps that you have to be mindful of. Now let's transfer into the actionable steps that you need to be mindful of. Okay. These are the things that you're actually going to do. Now, in the RRP, we have a signature protocol called Alleviate, which has the eight steps to treat resource guarding. I'm not going to give you those eight steps because that is just for our rover clients. However, what I will do is give you the overview that you can start implementing at home, okay? The first thing you want to do when you're treating resource guarding is have, and I should actually give a quick disclaimer. Right now, when I say when you walk by, what I really mean is whoever your dog is guarding against. Okay, so if your dog is guarding against another dog in the home, another person in the home, another dog on the street, another person on the street, whatever. Okay, so when I say you, just insert whoever is the threat into that equation. Okay, the first thing you want to do is just quickly walk by your dog while they have the resource. Have the resource, you're going to quickly walk by, toss a treat and move on. You're not going to look at them. You're not going to say their name. You may or may not use yes, depending on how triggering that is to your dog. It's just going to be a very quick moving and feed and keep going. And you're doing this for a couple of reasons. One, because you're trying to get your dog to learn that when you walk by, something better happens to them, right? That's number one. Number two, you're trying to establish a nice little routine, a new routine, a new game that happens during this resource time right? When they're eating, when they're chewing on their bone, when they're by their space, when they're whatever, right? While they're doing this thing, you're going to quickly feed them and keep moving. 
You don't need to make a big event. The only thing that I want you to do in this stage, as far as like making an event, the only thing I want you to make sure you're doing is do announce that you are coming. And what I mean by announce that you are coming over is you need to like fidget, you need to cough, you need to like shuffle your feet. You're not moving in stealth mode today, especially if your dog is like, his back is to you. We're not doing spontaneity right now. That is a whole other criteria. Spontaneity is its own little criteria. Yeah, we cross that bridge when we get there. Right now, all we're worried about is getting our dog to learn that when we go by, something brilliant happens. Now, I also need you to be mindful of proximity. What is the distance that you are from your dog? You need to be below your dog's threshold line. This is why knowing your dog's threshold statement is so important. Why running those experiments before you start training is so important. I don't know why we have this idea that we just like pick up a leash and go train and we just like pick up treats and like call it a day without ever writing any tests and experiments beforehand. Like, I don't know why. Like, even when you go to school, guys, they do like a pre-assess. Like, they assess where you're at first, right? They like have you do like a little pre-test. Be like, what is the score? What is our baseline? Where are you to begin with? We have a starting point that we work off of. I don't know why we don't do that in training, but we all need to be. Yeah, we need to run those experiments, get a clear threshold statement around it, know what tests or what proximity we need to stay away from, right? So you're at a far enough distance. This probably does indeed mean that you are tossing the treat, tossing it, toss it, okay? As far as you need to. Like, we should not be like, here you go, fluffy, here's your treat. No, 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 no. We're not doing that right now, okay? Toss it. So you're going to walk by, you're going to announce you're coming, you're going to walk by, you're going to feed. The second thing that you're going to do, the second step rather, like once you've been doing that for a little while, is you're going to start to extend out the duration that you were in that proximity. Now, at this point, your dog should start to have already recognized the game of like, you come into the space, you toss me a treat, right? And you may have even noticed that they start looking at you more in anticipation of like, hey, are you going to give me that yummy treat that you do sometimes, right? Now you're going to start extending out the duration that you are around them with their resource. You want to start off with just little like increasing it by one second, increasing it by two seconds. It's not like yesterday you were just walking by and now today you're standing there for six seconds staring at them. No, there's still progression there, right? We're increasing it steadily. We're mindful of our training plan to make sure that we are changing the periodization of it, which means that you are changing you're not gradually increasing the duration every single day. I won't digress too much on this because that can get me in a whole other episode. But what I would say is like when you guys are creating your training plans, you don't want every single day to be the next harder thing. You wouldn't want to start off with like easiest on Monday. And by Sunday, we're doing our hardest. And like every single day we've increased. Do not do that. Your dog will figure out that you are increasing the difficulty very quickly and they're going to start to see the pattern. They're going to start to see where this is headed. And then they will put on the brakes and you will see a regression, what you call a regression, even though it's not, right? So do not increase the difficulty every single day. You are changing it where sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's mediocre, sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier. There's a rhythm to it. In the RP, we give our clients like a pattern to design around it. We have a, a method for them to create their training plans, right? So you're doing that where you're extending out the duration over an extended period of time, then you are mindful of your appearance in that situation. Because there is a difference between extending out the duration with you like 
looking at the dogs and being like, what do you got there? <laughs> right. Versus you just on the couch watching TV and they're like off in the corner chewing on their bone. Those are two different things. Right. And what I see sometimes when we're treating resource guarding is like we train resource guarding like we're training a touch or like we're training a down or like we're training any other like basic skill where our attention is on them and our body language is on them. Right. And like it's very like, ha. But do not do that because A, likely your dog is going to tell you that's a harder criteria. That's number one. Likely your dog is going to tell you that you facing them and confronting that way is a more challenging and confrontational position that they're not, that they don't enjoy. That's number one. Number two, and I think this is the most important reason, is that it's not realistic. Like, I don't know about you, but I never just like stare at my dog while he chews on his con and just like only stare at him. Like, or when he's at eating breakfast or dinner, I'm just like staring at him with my body language, like forward. I mean, when are we actually going to be doing that? If your dog has physical health issues and like maybe digestion is an issue, then in that case, you may need to train for that. But in most cases, that's just not a realistic setup. Okay, so we need to be designing that duration, designing that resource guarding opportunity or training opportunity as realistically and sustainable as possible. Okay, that's number one. Now, the next step to that, as you've extended out that duration and your dog is like, hey, that we can do this. You can sit there and watch TV while I am over in the corner chewing on my bone or whatever, while I'm eating or while I'm playing, whatever. While you start to extend out that duration, you have two options from here. You could just start to focus on fading out tree, okay? And sometimes this is a good next step, depending on what the context is and depending on what is the context of the guarding. Like if, if it's food and it's very routine oriented and it happens pretty much systematically every single day, then it might make sense to focus on fading out treat. Okay. Or if it's something that's more fluid, for example, your dog guards against the other dog in the house every single time they walk by his bed. Or your dog guards against another individual every single time they walk by you or come closer to you, right? If that is the case and it's happening more organically in life, it's less structured, it's more spontaneous, then I actually recommend you start focusing on spontaneity first before you start fading out the treat. And the reason is because, again, this is getting you closer to reality. This is getting you closer to what's realistic, yes? And so when you are focusing on spontaneity, you are very mindful of your, what I call, I'm coming over cues, right? So we have like for separation anxiety, you probably have heard goodbye cues, right? For resource guarding, we have the inverse, which is I'm coming over, right? I'm coming into your space cues. Now, these cues can be things like you shuffling your feet and the sound of your feet getting louder as you approach them, right? It can be things like, before, when you were approaching, you would fidget or you would cough and announce prematurely like, hey, I'm getting closer to you. I'm going to come closer to you. Now you're very mindful about methodically moving out those cues, right? And if you've been treating separation side, you kind of understand this principle of like slowly including more goodbye cues. You want to think of resource guarding as the opposite. We're slowly removing oncoming over cues, right? to make things more spontaneous, to make it seem more organic in nature. 
I never really recommend just like surprising your dog out of the blue and be like, I'm here, I'm not, deal with it, right? That's not a good idea. However, the truth is like, if it's another individual that your dog guards against, your dog guards against another dog in the home, your dog guards against another person in the home or visitors, right? If your dog is guarding against another individual that is not you, you have a lot less control over that, right? You can't guarantee as much as you can guarantee in yourself that you are, that that person or that other dog is not going to take your dog by surprise, right? So there's a lot less reliability and consistency when you're dealing with another individual who your dog guards against than if it is you. Hey, Dog Guardian, I just wanted to let you know that we do have another way for you to work with us. If that's something that you're interested in, you can work closer with me and Team Dog Liaison in our Recover Rover membership. In this membership, we focus on reactivity, aggression, separation anxiety, leash reactivity, resource guarding, prey drive, car anxiety, and so much more, uh, noise sensitivity. So if your dog has any sort of behavioral complication, we have a track for you in our membership. So if that's something you might be interested in, you want to learn more about our coaching, you want to learn how you can work closer with me, you can go to getacomdog.com or check the show notes and there will be a link in there for you. Otherwise, let's get back to the episode. The other thing is, is that uh, especially if it's another dog, you're trying to get to the point of reality. You don't necessarily want to feel like every single time your dog is doing this thing that he resource guards against, you have to implement 18 different layers of precaution and you have to control your other dogs from ever getting it within proximity with ever getting closer, right? You don't want it to feel rigorous like that forever, right? So instead, we methodically start removing these I'm coming over cues start to make it more organic, start to make it more spontaneous, and we're more intentional about it. Then we can move into fading out the tree and fading out the external reinforcer for what they're having. Now, here's what I would say. The cool thing about resource guarding is that it's actually way, 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 way easier to remove treats from a resource guarding equation than pretty much any other training protocol in my experience, okay? And here's why. Most of the time when a dog is guarding, they're guarding something that they want a lot anyway. They want the food bowl. They want the Kong full of whatever. They want to lay on the bed. They want to do an organic behavior, right? But their fear is preventing them. Their fear of threat is preventing them from being able to do it. But when you move that threat, when you remove that threat and the dog starts to feel comfortable, they just do what they want right? They just keep eating. They just keep laying on the bed. They just keep chilling. They just keep doing whatever it is that they were doing. So you don't have to like be as methodical necessarily about moving out the treats because there's already an intrinsic value in whatever action they're doing. And so the cool thing about resource guarding, I would say like the win of treating resource guarding is that the process to move into a more practical, sustainable thing where you're not necessarily forcing an external reinforcer into every situation happens faster and it happens more likely than not by surprise, by your surprise. I have a lot of clients that will come to me and be like, well, we'll think like she's just eating. Like she doesn't even want to stop to get the treat or she's just chewing on her bone or she's just laying in the bed. She just lays in the bed 
And I actually noticed that if I give her the treat, it disturbs her that she has to like get up, get the treat, and then like reset and that's restless. Great. Don't feed her. Don't disturb that very beautiful natural behavior that your dog is doing that wants to do it. Like let it be. Let her be a dog, right? That's the cool thing about treating research guarding. Now, the number one thing that like a good principle, good rule, good affirmation to like have in your head as you treat your dog's research guarding is do not interrupt an already wonderful moment, right? Do not disturb the amazingness of the natural context. Do not try to make it artificial. Do not try to interject all of these weird random things that never would happen in reality of whatever that context is. Do not disturb the integrity of that context, right? Let the context be. Let it sit. Let it feel natural. Let it feel like you're not actually training. And that's a rule that we live by anyway, which is like real training doesn't look like training, right? But that is especially true in in resource guarding as well, okay? Now, earlier I had mentioned the difference between resource guarding and training. And so I'm going to recap that briefly for the teams that just kind of jumped on recently. So there is a difference between resource guarding and an arousal control or a more different life skill of I'm taking that back, you get something else instead, right? Resource guarding is telling your dog, you get to keep that thing. That thing is yours. While training is, hey, you can't have that for a number of reasons, but I'm gonna give you something else instead, okay? Two different life skills. They are not the same thing. The protocols for them, two different things. It's like, it might all be English literature, but writing a story is very different than learning how to interpret and analyze a story. They're two different skills. They're under the same umbrella, just different things, right? If you're talking about math, one is algebra, one is geometry. They're both math, just two different things, okay? And that's how you have to think about the difference between your dog gets to keep the resource or your dog has to trade the resource. Teaching your dog trade is important regardless, right? Teaching your dog that there are certain things that unfortunately you can't have but it's okay because I'll give you something else better, is a great interaction, a great piece of communication that your dog needs to acquire with you regardless. And it's something that we should be doing from puppyhood before we even worry about teaching the dog sit. We should be teaching the dog treat. Yeah. But what you cannot do, what you cannot do in a trade is steal. Do not steal from your dog. Here's what stealing looks like running around the house, chasing your dog, frying open their mouth, pulling the thing out of their mouth and then running away and hiding it from them and then turning around 30 seconds later and giving them a treat. That's not a trade. That's stealing. They had something and then you just like manhandled them and took it from them. When you do that, when you run up to your dog and like fry open their mouth and shove your hand on the throat and take the thing out, what you're effectively doing is you're the person walking down the street with your purse and some guy you don't know comes up to you, punches you, takes your purse away and runs down the street. It's the same thing. And you're sitting there looking around like, bro, that was my purse. The hell? It's the same thing. We're not stealing from dogs. We are trading. We must ask our dogs, are you willing to give this up in exchange for something else? Better. Are you willing to give me that 
And I guarantee you, if you do, I will give you something higher value in return. Now, here's the other thing that you have to think about with trading. What I see is a bunch of people that will not trade comfortably, that are not trading with any reason. The dog is chewing on your shoe, so you go give them a treat. The dog is chewing on, you know, or has taken off with your sock, so you go give them a rawhide or a bone. Those two things are not like, not the same, okay? And, and even from like at the fundamental texture level is what I'm talking about. If your dog steals a shoe, they're stealing something that smells like you, that has probably a really strong odor like you, that has a certain texture. Maybe it's hard on the bottom, but has some give in the cloth, right? So it doesn't make sense to go give them a treat that doesn't smell like you and it doesn't have the right texture. Instead, you need to go get like a something that smells like you. So maybe you start washing some of his goodies that he can have with your clothes or you're rolling your scent in it or whatever, giving them an old piece of clothes. And you're mindful of the texture. So you're picking something that is not necessarily very soft, but not something that's hard, hard, hard like a bow, right? So for a shoe, you might give instead a rope, right? Depending on the type of rope. If they run off with your sock, do not give them a con or a bone to chew on. Two different things. The equivalent of a sock would be a plush toy, something soft that they can really shred and pull. And yeah, we need to be thinking about what is our dog telling us they need. What is the thing that our dog has taken that the dog is saying, "Hey, this is what I want." And be like, okay, what is a comparable and perhaps even more valuable equivalent to that thing that you've taken? And this is where sitting down and writing a list is imperative. Because if you're sitting here going, I can't think off the top of my head when I'm in the moment, how do I know what to get? I can't think that quickly because he's going to die if he keeps swallowing that whenever. I hear it, but we're planners here, my friends. We don't wait till there's a fire in the building to go, oh crap, I guess we should have done something as precaution. We prepare ahead of time. So what you're going to do is you're going to sit and you're going to think about what are the things my dog tends to steal? What are the things that my dog tends to take that I need to start trading him? You're going to start writing a list of comparable of things. And if you can have like, you know, a list of the things that he takes. And for every single one of the things that he takes, you have at least one, if not four, different trades available. Then when the event happens, all you have to do is register your thinking bank because I'm sure you guys would have done this. You would have taken your little list and taped it to the fridge. So you've been looking at it multiple times every day since you created it. So it's in your thinking bank because you've been studying it, right? When the event happens, you're going to pull out from your thinking bank what are the things that I can trade my dog right now? Now, here's the thing that gets really tough that I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about. Most trainers don't. They just stop with what I've been telling you, but we're going to push it a little bit further. Okay, here's the truth. Showing up with the thing in your hand that says, hey, look what I've got. I'll give you this instead. That is bribery. And bribery can be good and it can be bad. It depends on the context and on the dog. So let me expand on this, okay? I see, oh my God, he's got a needle in his throat and we need to trade him something now or he's going to die as 
a pretty big emergency that we need to be doing some short-term relief for, okay? I see that as a pretty big problem. And by the way, if I can digress for a second, I, I had that experience growing up. The dog that I had growing up ate one of my sewing needles. I think I was like 12 or something. And it was a big problem because he swallowed it and he ended up having a big surgery. So I know firsthand that we do not want our dogs swallowing problems, okay? So when you see this, you're like, okay, I need to engage and operate immediately. So that would be the time for you to whip out your really high value thing and start playing it around and toss it into the air and offer the tree. Okay. Do whatever you got to do to get the thing out of that dog's mouth. Okay. However, if it's a safe learning opportunity where you can really ask your dog to give this thing up first because he's not going to die imminently with it, right? This is a better lesson. The lesson is I'll trade you. There is communication. There is a dialogue, right? Hey, can I have that, please? Sure, mom. Here you go. Excellent. Love that you gave that to me. Here is this really awesome higher value thing. Thank you so much. Here was a trade. Appreciated it. It is not, I got something. I got something. Come get it. Come get it. Come get it. It is not bribery. It is not desperate. And the cool thing is you're probably not going to poison it as, well, you're not likely to poison it. You're more likely to poison it if you're showing the thing ahead of time. And for people who don't know what poison means, when you hear a trainer say, oh, that cue is poisoned or that object is poisoned or that event is poisoned, what that means is we were trying to instill a positive or a good association with the thing. And actually it had the inverse effect where now the dog sees it as a bad thing. We've tainted its perception, right? So a lot of times what can happen with traits is the dog starts to learn that every single time he steals object A, you only pull out object B. And now object B means that he loses object A. So therefore object B is bad because it's not better value or even equal value to the thing that he actually wants, which is object A. So therefore object B is bad. We don't like that. We're going to avoid it. It's inverse, right? So you don't necessarily want to poison your trade. You don't want him to think that he is losing out, right? You want to keep the value of the things that you're trading. And you do this through a lot of different ways, through a lot of different techniques. But one of the ways is by making sure that he's offering the thing first. And then like if he is a willing participant, that's what that means, right? When he is offering it first, he is willingly giving it up. He's like, okay, right? He's not doing it because he's fearful. He's not doing it because you're flinging a thing in his face being like, I got a million dollars over here doing a crazy dance and desperate. He's not doing it because he's fearful of you. He's doing it because he's like, you know what? Last time I gave you this, I won. I got a good prize. Let's, let's try this test again. Let's just see what happens. What happens when I give you this thing? I get something even better. What? Stop it. Oh, I like this game. This is a cool game. We're going to do that again. So what's interesting, what can happen, uh, this doesn't happen very often, but what can happen is sometimes if you've set up a bad routine and you haven't implemented enough management, the dog will start stealing stuff just so that you offer the trade, which I see this as a very clever move, although it's not ideal, right? And what that really tells you, if you've run into that issue, if this is you right now where you're like, my dog just steals stuff just so that I give him a trade, what that really tells you is that you need to implement more management, right? We need to be preventing him from stealing it in the first place, which of course is a given. Yes, 
if we can prevent the steal or the desired behavior, then we don't need to give the, the trade in ever anyway. Yeah. But this comes down to, and this kind of segues me into a whole other discussion about enrichment, right? I mean, see how everything comes back to enrichment? Like I could spend an entire hour just talking about that. But all of this comes down to us knowing our dog's needs, our dog's individual needs, so that we can predict them, so that we can be engaging them before they have the opportunity to do an undesired behavior. So I hope this was helpful. I do have a video on enrichment. I have a 25-minute video all about enrichment uh, on my YouTube channel. It's a very good one. So it's more than just a talking head, too. It's got, like, visuals. Break it down. That's the video for you. I trained with a positive reinforcement trainer for research spreading in tainted food because my dog associated that food. Yes, absolutely. You can poison food. And a lot of our single event learners are very quick to poison their food. So I'd love to hear if you think your dog is a single event learner because that's the thing. Now I cannot trade with food. Yep. Yep. And then you have to basically go backwards and change your dog's perception of food because you've taken an essential resource to survival and now your dog is averse to it or is suspicious of it because the time it comes out in space especially if you're the one holding it right now it's like what's the game what is happening are you manipulating me what what does this mean what's going to happen right and so you're basically with that you're basically setting up the training session on a level of suspense it's, it's like from the get-go the dog is already doubtful right and is already on edge so you have to go backwards change the dog's perception of the food and then start over and you have to be even more careful the next time. What if my dog used me as the resource to guard? Great question. Absolutely. This is a thing. Thank you for bringing this up. That was a great question. And I had mentioned or thought about mentioning it before and I forgot. So thank you for this. So yes, absolutely. You can be a thing that your dog guards. Okay, let's talk about this. So a lot of times people think their dog is guarding them and he's not. In fact, most of the time they're guarding themselves as in their own bodies. Okay. However, Absolutely, a dog can guard a, their guardian. And the reason they would want to do that, and the, the reason it's still considered a resource guarding, the reason we don't, I don't personally call it territoriality, the reason I call it resource guarding of a person is because they view that person as an essential deed to the dogs, to their life, right? This person provides shelter. This person provides food and water. This person provides a sleeping environment. This person provides safety and security. And most importantly, this person provides me compassion and love. And these are all things that I cannot label as a dog, but I feel them, right? So absolutely, they can start to see the person as an essential resource. And so the first thing that we have to do is I like to start, if possible, changing where they get some of those resources so that you are not the sole provider of a lot of those resources, right? If we can get the other people recruited into the equation, this can speed up the process a little bit. Um, while you're doing this, you do have to be mindful that they don't start guarding the other people that are now providing some of those resources. So for example, I see a lot of times where dogs are guarding people. And when I ask like, okay, what duties does that guardian do in the household? They're like, well, she feeds, she pees, she is in charge of like making sure she has enough water and she's like doing all the things. It's like, okay, is it possible for at least someone else in the household to be doing that? No, because she lives alone with me. Like we just live by ourselves. Okay, got it. So then what we really have to do is we have to be mindful about what are the opportunities for your dog to solve a resource problem on their own. And what I mean by that is can we set up opportunities for your dog to access a resource independent of you? 
and their own will. A lot of our dogs that guard, okay, this is another thing to know, is a lot of dogs that guard their own, like a person, also are facing hyperattachment. Usually those can go hand in hand, where a dog may or may not have separation anxiety, but they are having hyperattachment to this person, okay? And if that's the case, then yeah, we need to work on the research guarding, but the research guarding of the person is not going to go very far if you're not also treating hyperattachment. So you have to start to focus on that as well right? You have to start treating how is the dog perceiving their relationship with this guardian? Is it entirely codependent? And how can we make our dog less codependent on their guardian, or at least perceive that they are? How can we get them to access some of their own resources? How can we set them up for opportunities to feel like they are doing some of the work themselves and not just their guardian, okay? So that is some of the enrichment component. From a tactful strategy, I actually treat resource guarding of a person more similarly to treating like dog aggression or dog reactivity. The only difference is that the guardian is feeding. So a lot of times when you see a reactivity training session, the guardian is feeding the dog. Yes. And for resource guarding, I tend to have the guardian feed the dog as well. But we have to make sure that the dog is not necessarily seeing it as a confrontation where it's like the person is approaching or the trigger is approaching them together, but more so like in a stable environment where everyone is more stationary and they're seeing everything move more organically, right? So it's not so much that they are approaching and that that's not the criterion. It's more just that we're existing. Like there's a moment of all of us living harmoniously in this moment together so that the dog doesn't get an opportunity to perceive it as a threat. Because there's a subtle difference in setting up the design between you're all just like sitting around watching TV, having coffee at the cafe or whatever, versus setting it up where the trigger is approaching both of you. And it's very confrontational in nature, right? But as I said, you could do all the resource guarding training in the world. If you're not also working on how the dog perceives their relationship with that individual, you're not going to get anywhere. It's not sustainable anyway. Like you will get some wins, but for a long-term like comprehensive treatment, you really need to be looking at the relationship that the dog has with that person. And the more we can be treating that hyper-attachment or the more we can treat how the dog perceives their necessity of that person, the more sustainable, the more stable that that ground is on. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. My problem, my dog will jump in between another dog and me or growl if another dog comes close while we're cuddling. I'm her only guardian. Okay, yes. Oh, okay, so... Yeah. So a lot of this, what you guys are describing is we have to be looking at the relationship. Like when you're saying like, oh, when I'm petting, my dog will jump in between another dog and me or growl if another dog comes close while we're cuddling. Like that tells me we need to be looking at your relationship. Like, because the thing is, is it would be really easy. Here's the truth, right? A lot of trainers would just tell you, well, don't cuddle your dog. You're cuddling your dog and that's causing your dog to resource guard. A lot of trainers would just stop at that. I say that is such an oversimplification of a much bigger problem, right? That's like being like, I got back problems. We'll just don't walk because then your back won't hurt. It's like, that doesn't solve anything. Like, what do you mean? Don't cuddle my dog. Don't give my dog compassion. Don't give my dog love. What does that mean, right? So for me, maybe removing some cuddling from certain contexts is a good idea, depending on the dog's threshold statement, depending on how we need to set up the criteria. But the that would be the only reason to remove a cuddle, right? The only reason to remove compassion or love would be that it is a harder criteria than if you're not doing it. 
And so you have to start at an easier criteria and work your way up to being able to cuddle your dog, right? But just say, well, just don't cuddle your dog, don't love your dog, don't give your dog compassion. It's like, that doesn't fix the actual problem. The actual problem is how the dog is perceiving the relationship between them and their guardian. Does that make sense? I hope that like that's the deeper solution. Yes. Yes. Do some research on hyperattachment. It's something that doesn't get talked a lot about. But if you're Googling for hyperattachment between dogs, you'll actually find it more in like the separation anxiety topic, like uh, umbrella, if you will. Like if you have like resource guarding and you have reactivity and you have aggression and you have the separation anxiety world, you're more likely to learn about hyperattachment under the separation anxiety content than any of the other ones. And I want to be clear that hyperattachment isn't a bad thing. Like it's not inherently good or bad. It's not like, yeah, we want all our dogs attached to us. And it's not like, no, we don't want our dogs to never be attached to us. Like it's just a thing that happens, right? And it happens for a number of reasons that some are within the guardian's control and many are not. So it's not good or bad. You just have to know what a relationship you're operating out of when you begin that learning journey, right? And like, for example, if I talk about myself for a second, I tend to gravitate toward more independent dogs. I tend to build relationships, stronger relationships with dogs that are less attached to me, if I'm being honest. Like my dog is, he's getting older and in his older age, you know, they get a little bit more like needy and a little bit more like love me. But by and large, for the most of his life, he's a crazy independent, right? And that's one of the reasons why we work because he wasn't super needy. He could solve a lot of his own problems. But I also have to know that that means that getting him to want to check in with me when we're out in the world is like not a vibe. That's not what he wants to do. He wants to go and be by himself. And that's cool. So you just have to know with what type of relationship you're operating out of with your dog. And you have to build your enrichment and your relationship with with your dog out of that. It's interesting to me because she's 100% fine when I leave. She doesn't have obvious separation anxiety when I'm not around. It's crazy. No. I would call her an independent dog. She currently is laying like three rooms away from me. So hyperattachment. So, okay. The reason hyperattachment is different than isolation distress is because isolation distress means like the isolation dog doesn't want to, or barrier frustration. Barrier frustration would be like the dog doesn't want to have something between them and their person, right? Isolation distress. I don't want to be alone. I don't care who's with me. I just don't want to be alone. Separation anxiety tends to be, it depends on who you ask. There are four different types of separation-related problems. There is not one clinical definition of separation anxiety. Anyone who says that hasn't read a study. There is not one defined clinical diagnosis of separation anxiety. Trainers have all their different interpretations of what separation anxiety is. One of the common ones within the positive reinforcement world is that a dog with separation anxiety is attached to one individual. And when that individual leaves, they want to be around them. Now, the thing is, hyperattachment, while tends to get jumped in and leaped in with separation anxiety, I see it actually as two different things. Because to me, personally, again, as I said, everyone has their own interpretation. So you can go to a trainer tomorrow and get an entirely different answer. Okay, so just know that. But for me, if I have a dog that has separation anxiety, the dog also like that can't handle being alone. They go into a panic when their person walks out the door, right? It's a panic. Whereas hyperattachment just means that 
they are very reliant on that person to give some sort of resource, if not multiple resources, right? They're very reliant and feel like they don't see another option other than like, you are my option. You are the thing, right? So it's not crazy that your dog isn't experiencing separation anxiety because for me, I'd separate separation anxiety and hyperattachment, even though a dog could have both. I see them as two different things. And hyperattachment may or may not mean that the dog is following you from room to room because hyperattachment and isolation distress are two different things. So if a dog is not following you around, that would be an indication that they don't have isolation distress. So it's okay that they don't have isolation stress. Like this is where we get into the nitty gritty of all of the different terms and all what they all mean. So I think that's what you're kind of hitting on is like, well, she doesn't have separation anxiety. She doesn't have isolation stress and she's just fine sleeping in the other room. Well, she's fine sleeping in the other room because she knows where you are. And it's part of the routine and everything's fine. And we work just fine in routine. It's the deviations from the routines that are chaotic. Thank you all for having a very fabulous chat with me. I hope this was beneficial. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, it would help us tremendously if you would leave a review sharing what nuggets of gold were most valuable to you and why you think other dog guardians should listen to this podcast too. And don't be a stranger. Contact me and Team Dog Liaison on Instagram, Facebook, and email. Links to all of our socials are in the description box of this episode. We are wishing you well, and we are hoping that you jump into our very next episode. We'll see you soon.